This season of Life on a Plate is sponsored by Bart Ingredients, whose extensive range of quality herbs, spices, seasonings and pastes are all available at Waitrose. Bart offers so many simple, delicious ways to elevate your cooking. From aromatic whole spices to handy blends and pastes such as Ra's El Hanout or black garlic paste. They'll help you build incredible depth of flavour and create beautiful dishes. What's more, with over 50 years of experience working with producers all over the globe, Bart's guarantee their ingredients are grown and harvested responsibly with care for people and the planet. So whether you're just starting out on your cooking journey or you're, forgive the pun, a seasoned chef, you can relax and trust Bart to open up a world of exciting flavour. Go to waitrose.com forward slash Bart to discover the range. Hello and welcome to the second season of Life on a Plate, the podcast from Waitrose. In each episode, we talk to some very special people about what food means to them, asking about their comfort foods and favorite dishes, their food memories and go-to ingredients, and finding out a lot more about each of our guests in the process. Alison, hello. How are you? Hi, Jimmy. I'm well, thank you. How about you? I am pretty good. And I've actually come today with some important business that I want to ask you. I was wondering, are there any uh, foods or dishes that you had maybe at one point in your life convinced yourself you didn't like because of the way they were served or because of the way you had them and you've since performed a total U-turn on? So I'll start. For me, it is, weirdly enough, it is tomatoes and grilled tomatoes uh, specifically as part of a fry up or a full English and I'll tell you why I think I always they always used to be like kind of only partially cooked and like under seasoned and there'd be this kind of you know sometimes you'd even a bit in the center yeah sometimes you'd even just it would just be like an upended can of tin tomatoes in certain cafes Um, and so I just convinced myself that I just was not interested they were not for me. But now I've since hit upon this method with grilled tomatoes. I, I generally get sort of cherry tomatoes on the vine. I add oil, lots of salt, lots of pepper, mm. bit of oregano. And then I kind of put them underneath the grill, like on quite a high heat and like make them sort of, mm-hmm. you know, get a bit bubbled and blacken on the outside and sort of, yeah, a bit of char as well. And they kind of burst and they like leach this mm. lovely kind of tomato juice. And I finish that sometimes with a little bit of um, white wine vinegar or sherry vinegar or something like that. And they are my favorite part of any like cooked breakfast situation yeah. now. And I was just, it just struck me the other day that, wow, like if I could go back in time and tell sort of childhood me that like, you know, the, the tomatoes would be the bit that he'd look forward to the most. But I just, yeah, it just set me off and I wondered, uh, what would it be for you? Yeah, it's a bit embarrassing to confess as a food editor, it's cheese. I really hated cheese as a child, so much so that my mum used to do a separate portion of the lasagna or anything that was cheese free, <laughs> just because I just said, I kind of just said how much I hated it. 
that now is just totally gone out yeah. the window because I really like a toasted cheese, stringy mm. cheese sandwich. I'm still not great on kind of really strong blue cheese, but, you know, a mature cheddar is lovely. Yeah, yeah. Any excuse to just try cheese board is good. Well, cheese, handily, is a pretty good link to our guest for today because obviously that cheese would have come from a farmer. And our guest today is Minette Batters, who is the president of the National Farmers Union. And she's actually the first woman to hold this job in the organization's 113-year history. She's an advocate for sustainable, kinder farming and great animal welfare. Um, She runs her own farm and uh, she's really given a voice to a section of people that we kind of think we have an opinion about or that we know what makes them tick but she has kind of given them a real sort of human face and showed what it really takes to be a farmer and have that real vital role in feeding the nation really at what is a particularly challenging and interesting time for them how are you feeling about this one because you've got quite a lot of experience with farms haven't you Do you know what? I love talking to farmers. We've done quite a lot of farm visits looking at animal welfare of, you know, the farmers that supply us. And so it's just when you talk to them, you just always learn more and hear about what it takes to put the food on our plate. Yeah, yeah. And she's she's also quite a big cook as well. So it'd be fascinating to hear about how she manages to get meals on her table at the end of a busy day and put it all around the farming schedule as well as the work that she's doing with the farmers union yeah yeah i definitely want to hear about that balance and that juggle and what her cooking life is like she trained as a professional chef um ran a catering business which is still a part of what she does with the farm and she's going from mucking out and doing work on her farm and sort of running around there to meeting politicians and stuff and it's like a really really interesting uh, dichotomy so let's get straight to it then shall we uh, here is our conversation with Minette Batters Minette Batters I wanted to get a little bit on your early life and your early memories because you grew up on a farm and it was something um, that your family did so what was that like? In many ways it was so different I think back then everything was was very different it was it was harder work really you know we didn't have the mechanization that we've got now so farming was about about heavy lifting Um, everything now is so high tech that you've taken a lot of the hard work out of it um, but my passion was always the livestock. So I used to rear all our calves that we bought in um, before I went to school and when I got home. And I developed a, a very deep passion uh, for cows, which I kept with me. And they are still my great passion in life. And mm. a, a beef herd or indeed a dairy herd is is part of the family because those cows and successive generations um, you know, the genetics live on with you. And it, it really does take a lifetime to, to build a herd. And uh, I, I always think you never sell a herd of cows. If you sell them, you are out. So they are they are part of the family, part of the identity of the farm. So it's a, it's a very special relationship. So growing up when you were helping on the farm, were there any regular jobs you did before school that you really loved and any that you might have hated? My parents were absolutely regimented about the time that you got up. And I can remember having a a friend to stay. He was just horrified that my clothes were thrown on my bed at half past six in the morning. 
and I was told to, to get outside and, and she was used to lying in bed until 10, 11 o'clock on a Saturday. And that's what life was like. Every morning you had to get outside and do your jobs, whether that was uh, mucking out and um, sorting things or for me as well, rearing the calves. I would go and obviously they had to have warm milk. You'd make up the milk. Um, you'd take that round to them. You'd make sure that their water had been cleaned out. You'd be giving them hay. You'd be strawing them up. Um, but it was it was all, you know, done in in order. And I, I think, you know, in a world where my children have lions, animals love routine. You know, they have to have a regimented routine, be fed at certain times, because, of course, you know, they don't work on the basis of, oh, well, let's wait for two hours. So I, I think growing up for me, it was about, you know, that never having a lion. And of course, now, you know, I, I can never lie in bed. It's just something that has become so ingrained in me. I wake up first thing in the morning, I have to get up. No lion, but also probably no holidays too, because animals can't have a holiday. That is so true. I never, ever went uh, on an aeroplane with my parents. We we didn't go on, on a holiday. Um, we'd occasionally go to the Royal Show, which sadly is no longer, but it was at Stonely Park. And so we'd occasionally go there for a few days, but that was the holiday. So growing up, who was in the kitchen doing the cooking for the family meals? My mum uh, was a great cook and uh, she used to do all the family meals. She was It was a very regimented life back then. My father insisted on meals absolutely on time. So breakfast had to be at eight o'clock, lunch had to be at half past 12, and an evening meal had to be uh, at 7.30 and those were sort of nailed down completely different to my life now but she she was a brilliant cook and still is. Was it was it regimented just because that just had to fit around what was happening on the farm the whole time and if something slipped then the rest of the day slipped? Very much uh, driven by the farm um, and and the working day mm. so it was it was a regimented approach to link in with that and you know my father would never answer the phone uh, at lunchtime, whereas of course the life that we lead now, I, I tend to answer my mobile whenever it rings, and I'm, I'm hardly aware that it's lunchtime yeah. or, or what time it is. You just answer your phone, so it, it was very different, I think, back then. And were you ever in the kitchen helping too, or were you, were you always out on the farm helping? I loved cooking from a very early age. I, I really was passionate about it, and so I enjoyed doing a lot of cooking back then, making cakes making pastry. I was probably more of a baker, I think, at heart. So I had a great affinity with um, with food from a very young age. But also, I, I think probably quite a tomboy, really wanting to be outside. Mm-hmm. Um, that was probably my, my greater passion, I think. <laughs> Do you remember the first thing you baked? It, it was I, uh, probably a lot of children end up making this first. I think it was some sort of chocolate mess with either cornflakes or rice krispies in it. I do remember that sort of going everywhere but it's it's something that my kids ended up making pretty early on because you've just got to melt the chocolate put the syrup and the butter in and you yeah. can't in theory go too far wrong but of course some um, things tend to go everywhere so that's probably my first memory at a very very young age you mentioned your father there and he was quite adamant that you couldn't be a farmer or you kind of that, that you wouldn't be able to do it or that women couldn't do what you are doing at a very high level now. Did you accept him kind of saying those things? I, I think you always look back in life and think, um, I could have handled that much better. And uh, he and I were very, very alike. And, and without doubt, our personalities uh, clashed. 
And uh, there were a couple of reasons, really, for him thinking that farming was not a good road to go down. We didn't own our farm. He farmed in partnership with my landlord. So in his eyes, there was no route. We were never going to be able to afford to buy a farm. And there was no route to what we call now long term farm business tenancies. So that was one of his reasons. And, and the other one was that he felt that, again, what I said about the hard work, uh, the lack of, of sort of the technologies that we have today, you know, he just didn't feel that, that women were cut out for it. So we, you know, we had, a, I think, quite a challenging relationship out then. And of course, the more you're told that you can't do something, for me, uh, I guess, the more determined I became to do it. So um, <laughs> <laughs> I wonder I wonder if he'd been saying, oh, you know, you should come into farming. It's, it's wonderful. You know, I'd really like to do all I can to support you. Whether I would have been quite so determined and, and passionate about it, probably not. There's a sort of life lesson in reverse psychology there, isn't mm. it? Definitely. You did have another career as well. You um, uh, trained as a chef, which I'd really love to know more about. Um, was it as was it as hard as people say it is? So I, I trained as a chef in London. I did a cordon bleu diploma. Mm -hmm. I cooked at a pub for a very long time. And I, in the end, I set up my own sort of bespoke catering business. And I did a lot of weddings, a lot of dinners, a lot of drinks parties anything that was going really for for all sorts of people from all different walks of life and then building the wedding business here was a, a sort of natural continuation of of my background in that business so food has always been a, a key part of my life it's been a passion in my life now in the role that I'm in uh, which I've been in now for seven years uh, I've had to step back from professional catering. And so we get other people in to do that now. And it's it's strange, really, because I'm back in the rut that I think a lot of people find themselves in where I cook the things that I feel happy with and comfortable with and that my children I know will eat. What does an average dinner look like when you're when you're busy? So I'm trying to be really good and very things throughout the week um it'll often be things like uh, a lasagna or a chili um our roasted chicken now and again uh, i'm really finding it um fantastic to try and cook with more pulses more vegetables um wean myself off of potatoes and get into um uh, sort of couscous and other things that are just stretching you away from from the basics so it's always something pretty simple that I can throw together in probably half an hour maximum my son is type 1 diabetic so I'm, I'm always focusing on that too mm -hmm. uh, but making sure that he's not deprived of anything that he eats what, what he wants to eat when he was diagnosed I guess he was quite young did you find that that really changed the way you as a family ate? It's uh, Type 1 is, is a very, very difficult thing. Uh, and I think every family probably goes into it differently. I mean, my son was five when he was diagnosed and sort of old enough to semi-process it, but not completely. And, and what he found enormously challenging was the fact that he was different to other children, that he had to give injections. And at primary school, he had a couple of episodes where he got hysterical about the whole thing. Like all of us, children want to be treated the same as, as everybody else. And, you know, things like type one change that. So I was determined to make it fit around his life. 
And we've remained determined to make it fit around his life ever since. And that is difficult. You know, George isn't mad keen on carb counting. Um, you know, loves to sort of carb guess. And being a teenager at the moment sort of has become almost nocturnal in his habits. So he likes to sort of eat at night and sleep in the day. So it is a challenge. But I, I have tried to always put his mental health first. And it, the temptation as a parent is to want to really micromanage their life because the better you get the blood sugars, the better and longer term their life quality is. So it's, I think it's a bit of a roller coaster ride. But at the end of the day, he can lead a normal life. You know, I look at other families who have much greater restrictions. And I try and always reinforce that with George that, you know, this is one thing, but you can live with it. There's nothing that you can't do with type one, nothing. Obviously, veganism and vegetarianism is, is such a topic of discussion and a lot of people are trying to reduce their their meat uh, eating. And obviously, the other side of that is people are just looking to make more sustainable choices and, and higher welfare animals and things like that. What's your journey been with that debate? Whatever age we are, none of us are eating enough fruit and vegetables. And so I, I really made a conscious effort in every meal to I- incorporate those and we have access to such amazing vegetables now, such amazing fruits, such amazing salads that that we never did. So there is really no excuse. I guess my frustration comes slightly in the term sort of plant based. And I much prefer to talk about let's just have let's call it what it is and let's have much more fruit and vegetables in our diet. And, and if people want to have a meat free diet, you can have a meat free diet. But let's use whole foods. Uh, in that diet and and a lot of plant-based foods if you look at the high processing of it you actually when you your point on sustainability you look at where the sourcing has come from and realize it isn't truly sustainable so for me it's about a healthy balanced diet of which for my family meat and dairy is is a part of that healthy balanced diet but it's also made up as I say every meal with, a, with as many fruit and vegetables as I can sort of cram into it or mask <laughs> into it. In my children's case, I've never managed to get them to eat a Brussels sprout yet, but that's work in progress. I just don't think now we really appreciate the food that is on our plates. I was brought up by my parents who obviously went through a war. So I was always being focused. You have to finish every single thing that is on your plate. And I can remember at school eating some horrendous things like semolina that uh, was just really making me feel sick. But you had to eat it all. And I think now we are not as, as firm on that. And so we waste, you know, 16 billion pounds worth of food every year. And that is unsustainable. So we've got to get back to valuing our food more. The idea of waste is a really interesting one. And I think we're all trying to do better in terms of that. And I think you're absolutely right that there is a, there can just be a bit of a disconnect and things arrive so easily or people don't have that connection to what it takes for each thing on their plate to be produced and the work that goes into it how do you kind of try to limit it and save on food waste within your own home cooking it is a big problem and it's a a problem throughout the chain but most specifically I think for all of us as consumers you know it's been so easy to buy things um and especially in some ways with COVID, with trying to limit um, visits to store, it's, it's very easy to over buy on, on fresh, which there's really no excuse for because we've got stores, convenience stores springing up 
all over the place. So so sourcing food has never been easier. But I do think we've got complacent ab- about valuing it. And I think if you work through, you know, the average household budget, the amount we actually do throw away is is probably quite staggering. So with fruit, vegetables, things like that, any leftover vegetables after a meal, I'll always turn them into into soup and just try and get quite sort of regimented about that. But I'm nowhere near as as good as as I should be. And I, I think we all have to get much, much more careful about not wasting food because it it's one of the biggest challenges with climate change. If we could stop wasting our food, it would really help with our emissions. And I think it goes much deeper than that, too. If we value our food, we will value more how it is produced and the care that is taken. So I think there are much deeper messages that really need to come from early learning in schools. I've long believed that actually learning how to cook at school, of course, Waitrose has done such a fabulous job there in in really inspiring a nation, you know, how to cook at a very young age. And that could not be more important. Yeah, because actually part of the problem is people don't know what to do with food waste and, and you've got the cooking skills to turn them into soup. But I think the other thing is people just don't understand how much effort it takes to rear your beef. Exactly that. And it's the whole, I think, the whole sustainable approach to not only the food we buy, but the lives that that we lead. And you know, we, We've got this this great commitment to get to net zero by 2050. We've said at the NFU we can get there by 2040. So I think climate change for everybody now is is real. And the exciting thing for food is that we can we can do something about it. We're a source of emissions, but we're a sink. So we, we can get to carbon neutral food. So, Minette, just for those listening, how would you describe sustainable farming? What is it? In a nutshell, I'll try and give you the, the short version. Sustainable farming, what I would call climate friendly farming, is about producing um, effectively more food, but on less land with less input. So food production impacts on our environment. You know, that that is what happens. Producing our food, whatever we choose to eat, whether that is fruit, whether that's vegetables, whether that is livestock or dairy, it impacts on our planet. When we look at the road to getting to carbon neutral food, ever more sustainable farming, it literally does mean that we produce the same amount or we might even be producing more because the business is ever more efficient and you focused on that sort of ghastly word productivity. So you're making sure that your animal health status is 100%. You are precision farming. So you are only putting fertilizer on areas that absolutely need it because you have mapped it, you've GPS mapped it to know exactly where those things need to go. So your inputs are are going down and hopefully massively going down. That is good for the farmer because that is taking cost out. That is good for the environment because it is causing much less damage. And also because you are more efficient and your business is a better business, you can farm on less land and achieve the same output. And in doing that, you set more land aside for nature as well. So it's it's a win-win for everyone. It's a win for biodiversity. It's a win for the environment, for animal welfare. It's just better for everyone. And of course, for the end consumer, they they know then that their food has been sustainably produced. And I think over the next 10 years, we're going to see greater progress than we've probably seen in the in the last 50 years. You know, the whole focus on sustainable agriculture 
where you're decreasing your food production footprint and maintaining what you're producing so that the consumer is still getting really high quality, higher quality, affordable food. Is that something that you had to convince farmers of? Did you have to kind of make that case or were the farmers that you were speaking to, were they ready to, you know, the net zero challenge was held up as something quite radical and they were, you know, raised eyebrows about how possible it was really. Uh, what's your role been in sort of convincing people and getting people on board? Have people been willing to come with you on this journey? I've been absolutely amazed how, uh, and I don't mean amazed in that I didn't think farmers would be pro it, but they have really grasped the opportunity to be part of the solution I think whatever business you run, you want to be appreciated by everybody. You you want to have an access to a market and you want people to buy more of what you produce. That every farmer wants to leave their farm in a better state. There's no doubt in my mind uh, about that. So when we were talking uh, back in 2019 about being the first country, if you like, the first farming union to say, right, we can hit net zero by 2040. We can beat the government target by 10 years across every sector, there was enormous enthusiasm with farmers saying, yep, we're up for this. We want to do this. But if we can get to a place where we are carbon neutral in this country for agriculture and the food that we eat, that will be a phenomenal success story and provide global leadership. Because the whole challenge with climate change is we can't just do it here. We have to lead the world. And this, I believe, having left the EU, is our chance to lead, have a policy that delivers on what is needed, those incentives to reduce our emissions. And agriculture, as I say, is the one sector that can do this as a source and a sink. We can do it. The things that you're talking about give a real insight into what it actually is to be a farmer and the practicalities. And you talk about the early mornings and the the warming the calf milk and I feel like these are things that even people like me who feel like they know about restaurants write about food are quite disconnected from and um, I remember hearing your interview on Desert Island Discs and that was kind of probably one of the first times that I'd I'd sort of heard a farmer in that context and that must be that must have been a great thing to do and that must be great for you to kind of keep showing people what it's really like. I was astounded to get asked to go on Desert Island Discs. I mean, to me, that is about famous people. And I just see myself as as a sort of uh, a farmer and a mum and, and someone who, who leads the National Farmers Union. So I was really staggered to get the invite to go on there. And, and the biggest irony for me was that the um, producer had been doing her weekly shop and weight trays, picked up your magazine and read an article about me and thought it would be brilliant to make the connection between farming uh, and my leadership role and uh, and food. And so that that was how I got on Desert Island Disc. It was just, a, just an extraordinary thing to do. It really was. We've all got our stereotypes on what farmers are. How would you describe the modern farmer that you, you're representing at the NFU? One of my frustrations growing up was I always felt um, that farming was always deemed as, as male. Um, marketing to a certain extent tended to have uh, if there was a farmer on it it tended to be a man sort of in a, a check shirt or in overalls of a certain age and I just don't think it ever did or does justice to the modern farmer so the modern farmer is very tech savvy is certainly male and female so many women uh, coming into farming 
And it's very, very different from that sort of stereotype of, of a man in, in overalls. I mean, there's a lot of young people out there who are who are passionate and they look at the world through different eyes. They are they don't see the problems that that my generation, we tend to focus on the problems and they don't see that. They just see the opportunities and they look at the world very differently. So farming, I think, is changed in its image uh, beyond all belief. You know, it, it's about men and women. It must and is embracing diversity and opportunity right across, you know, all cultures. And that, I think, is, is a massive success story for the United Kingdom. Obviously, it's incredible to think of people hearing this and being inspired by what you're saying in a, in a new way that they hadn't necessarily had for themselves. Um, I'm going to flip it around. What is it that inspires you? Who kind of um, gives you that, uh, that kind of lift or drive? Oh, there's so many people, really, I guess, throughout my life that have inspired me. I mean, when I was uh, working in the pub, when I'd been to catering college, um, it was very much the era of, of Delia Smith, you know, who put sort of food on the map, really. You know, she was the one that I remembered being on the television and and creating that sort of accessibility uh, to food you know she made I, I think everything within the art of, of the possible and then of course we, we've transitioned on you know into Mary Berry and Prue Leith and Jamie Oliver and, and all of those people all chefs I, I think it's wonderful for me to see now how they are household names and it's not just about restaurants and hotels they are they are in your home you know those those books and of course online all those recipes are so accessible and what I'm really pleased about that they are all doing now and my frustration when I was younger was that they weren't making the link back to primary production. So they weren't talking about farming, provenance, authenticity of food. And now, of course, they all are because we are all as consumers. We all want to know how our food is produced, where it's produced. We want to know the climate change impacts. I think the consumer now is is very savvy and has access through social media to all of these things. So I think there's a whole army of, of chefs that have inspired me throughout my life because they've managed to connect. You know, it's all about connection. And the more you can connect, the, the, the better. There have been some incredibly inspirational farmers. Um, just to pick one business uh, out of the blue, uh, Yo Valley. Uh, I've visited that business, Mary Mead, um, who is a tour de force. She knows more about Frisian cows than anybody I have ever come across. And their passion for, for the Yeo Valley business, the largest British-owned uh, yogurt business in, in the country, um, is, is just incredible. So I went there and they've got a lovely cafe. I had the most memorable meal. And just walking around the, the business and hearing about their enthusiasm from farm to fork is really moving, really moving, and makes me enormously proud um, of of what I do and the people that I represent. I I get the chance to visit many of the growers out there, people who are producing our strawberries, our blackberries, our blueberries, and those are incredible businesses. And every time I go there and I see uh, how they have transformed, we've gone to what they call tabletop picking now which means that for people picking, you don't have to bend down. You're not ferreting around, you know, in the straw and the mud as we were as, as children trying to find strawberries. 
they are all at a height where you can just walk alongside and put the strawberry in the box. And of course, for them, we can pick so many more strawberries. It's it's amazing to, to witness. So those people that inspire us, that have inspired me, that that make us just think about the connection between the land and the food that is on our plates. Was that something as well that you got from home as well? You talked about your mother and her influence on your love of food, and that seems to have set you on this path. Oh, very much so. I mean, she was always making everything. She she loathed making cakes. She'd never make cakes or biscuits, <laughs> but she was a very good savoury cook, I would say. Um, and my children, without me knowing it, it was a really extraordinary moment when they were probably about seven, I suppose, and she'd gone to the shop. She'd come back with some apples. And they'd taken one look at these apples and they said, but Granny, those are French apples. And she sort of shrugged her shoulders and they said, well, Mummy won't buy French apples. You have to go and buy British ones. So they frog marched her back down and made her buy British ones. So my children, because I'm always saying to them, you know, if, if you buy British and to look out for the Red Tractor logo, because that will be proof that it is produced here then you know that it's been produced at a high standard. It's brilliant way that you've inspired your children to do that with Granny, but have they shown any interest in going in the farm? My daughter prides herself on saying that mum, you know, no 16-year-old knows what they want to do, which uh, I know isn't true because I know plenty of her friends who know exactly what they want to do, but she uh, is owning up to no ambition uh, for the future at the moment, keeping all her options open. But she she loves living here. And I know she feels enormously privileged to live in the countryside and to live on a farm and have the animals around her. My son is is really helpful on the farm, um, but I don't push Mm. them into it. I I feel it is there. Nothing would make me happier, but it's their life and uh, it, it will be up to them. You know, nowadays, you know, I want them to to really get those qualifications to get away from the farm. And, and see a bit of life, because I think what we do see now is the more you can can look at, at other sectors, at other jobs, you can bring those back. I mean, very much as I did, you know, I trained as a chef and farming, you know, is changing, is evolving. We need to be able to diversify, really, to manage our risk. Yeah. One of the questions I always ask everyone when we speak to them is, have you got any ingredients that you always have in your store cupboard? I've always got garlic, always, but always. I would use it sort of on a on a daily basis, I think. I've always got ginger. Um, those are probably my two sort of as far as fresh goes. I, I just always have them. I'll often marinate um, both both beef and lamb to turn them into tagines, mm. all sorts of things. But the you know the marination, the flavors absorbing, putting lots of herbs in can transform things. But also, I, I think what I feel strongly about too is you know we're predominantly grass based here in the UK, so we're not feeding the sort of world's mm. grains. We we have a grass based system, and I don't think we realise quite how lucky we are that that we do have that. So our animals are predominantly outside. They're grazing grass. That is all fantastic for omega-3s and other things that you want uh, to get out of a healthy, balanced diet. So also to be careful not to mask, you know, the great flavours that we have within, within, you know, the sustainable meat that, that we're producing. Is food and cooking a way that you unwind, Minette? I really do unwind by cooking now. I, I mean, I find the pressure of my job at this time of such change, representing so many farming businesses, 
it, it does weigh heavy on my shoulders. So I know the role of the NFU, the food standards campaign that we ran last year, where we had over a million people um, supported it in a two week period. You know, people in this country really care about not undermining our farmers. So I take my role very seriously. And and I very much wear my heart on my sleeve. So the opportunity to wind down and sort of step back is difficult to achieve sometimes. And I get enormous, uh, I guess, therapy out of cooking now, just very, very basic things, spending time making something and enjoying making it. Minette, it would be really good to know, just as somebody who doesn't know too much about the practicalities of this, how something like animal welfare is um, comes into play on on your farm because it's primarily beef and it's primarily livestock and cattle. Um, how does it work? Animal welfare is something that the people in this country care passionately about. Um, you know, they they really want to know that animals have had a good life, have been well looked after. And it's in the best interests of of every farmer as well. And and for me and my business, the bulk of the year, my cows and calves will be out. Um, when the weather starts to change, sort of normally round about mid-October, end of October, we'll bring them in so that they are shielded from the worst of the weather. They have straw beds to lie down on. And we feed them hay and silage that we have made in the summer months. And then you get to that wonderful time of year, sort of normally for us about April time when the grass is starting to grow. Winter is over and behind us uh, and you turn them out and they can go back to grazing grass again. It's really important for me that every cow, you know, every cow costs a lot of money to keep and they are breeding cows. So they need to have a, a nice, healthy calf every year. So when I talk about healthy animals, healthy animals is good for everyone. It's good for the farmer. Healthy animals don't see the vet. Healthy animals don't need antibiotics and medicines. Do your beef cows, when they when you let them out, are they like the dairy cows that skip out? They skip, they jump. They are like, like us, I guess, if we have been kept inside uh, for a long time and you get out in the fresh air and you just think, well, this is great to be out. So they do leap in the air. They buck, they jump. They're just ecstatic to be out. What they really like to be doing is grazing grass. And if there's grass out there that they can eat, um, that's what they what they love doing. Terrific. It seems like uh, a beautiful uh, circle as well in terms of your connection with the calves and that childhood uh, fondness and love and responsibility that you had. And that's now reflected in the relationship you have and the work that you're doing and the deep importance of happy animals and well-treated animals and how that just makes everything more positive. Very much so. And and for the people um, that, that work with me here, you know, making sure that, you know, everybody wants a happy environment to, in which to work. And so if the animals are happy, the people are happy, nobody wants to be dealing with, with stressed people or stressed animals because, you know, that, that's where dangers can come in. The calmer everything is, the calmer the animals are, you know, the better they are, the happier they are. And uh, that's what I want, happy people and, and happy cows. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Minette, for your time. That has been wonderful and really, really fascinating and uh, amazingly hopeful. And yeah, just great to, great to talk to you. Oh, my pleasure. And thanks so much for having me on. You've been listening to Life on a Plate from Waitrose. 
I'm Jimmy Famarewa. Thank you to my co-host, Alison Okavy, and our guest, Minette Batters. To learn more about the series, go to waitrose.com forward slash podcast, and please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.